Urban Kenya podcast is brought to you by the Urban Educators Collective. The EWC is a partnership of 13 schools located in urban areas to broaden our impact and work to enrich each other. Our goal is to bring 1,000 smiling faces into 30 urban schools by 2030. This podcast serves to illuminate the work that God is doing, not just in the cities we reside, but all across America. We post bi-weekly and just recently launched season two. Find out more about what we do and how you can help by visiting www.uecollective.org. www.uecollective.org. Today's episode, I have the pleasure of hosting my sister-in-law, Rebecca Schenk, who is joined by her husband, my brother, Trevor Schenk. Rebecca offers a delicate and promising perspective into the world of mentorship and persevering through tough things to find and love King Jesus. Be sure to catch the second episode launching in a couple weeks. I'm excited to uh, do this. Just a full disclosure for the audience. We did record this previously, and it didn't actually work out um, in terms of the audio end on my end. And so we're taking this our second time. And if you hear anything in the background, um, it's probably my nephew, William. And so we're recording in their home. And uh, we're right by the street on Duke Street. And Duke Street in every city is uh, a little questionable. I wouldn't know. I grew up with one. Yeah, exactly. So for those who aren't familiar with the format of the podcast, um, we start off by having you share your story. And in sharing your story, we'll kind of transition into, into a conversation about the things that you're passionate about. I know what those things are but the audience doesn't. Um, just to give you guys a, as an audience a little bit of a background on who Rebecca is, Rebecca moved into York, was it eight, 10 years ago to be a teacher um, and eventually became a mentor there at the school. And um, I worked closely with what Rebecca helped produce as a head of our mentoring program um, when she was no longer there. She married my brother, moved to Philly, Lancaster, et cetera. Um, so he took us from, took her from us, but I took over the program for a year or two and um, helped lead the mentoring program there at Tidings of Peace in York, which is in our collective. So um, I have had the privilege of getting to know and see what Rebecca is passionate about. I've heard her story, and now I turn it over to her. So Rebecca, I gave you these questions in advance, but two things I'd like to start out with. I'd like you to explain your childhood. Um, the two things that I have here is how did growing up in your household shape you into the person that you are today? And if there's one attitude or disposition that you went into your teens with that you could undo or repurpose, what would it be and why? Well, thank you so much for having me, Keyshawn, on this podcast. I'm very excited to be able to be here chatting with you and I'm excited about this podcast in general. So I grew up as a second born in a family of four and my childhood, as far back as I can remember, was marked by instability and a lot of heartache. And I would say, yeah, it, like especially when I turned eight years old, it was especially hard as my family, um, my parents divorced. So I feel like my childhood was shaped a lot by um, hopes for something getting better. But oftentimes, as soon as I would feel like, oh, maybe something's going to get better, something bad would happen. And that was repetitive from five till, at least as far back as I can remember, from five to, wow, in my teens or even my, like, towards my 20s. Um, so I feel like, so in to break that down a little bit more, my when I was eight years old, my parents divorced. 
And then when I was 10 years old, my mom, or almost 11, I should say, around 10 to 11, um, my mom would have completely like left the scene of my life. And she was gone. I didn't hear from her, speak to her for six years. And so my life has been shaped a lot by kind of trying to fill the role of a caretaker in my family for my siblings, especially my younger brothers who were living at home then. Felt like I was a caretaker. I, I kind of feel, tried to, I, by default, stepped into the role of caretaker. Mm-hmm. I felt like I need to take care of my family. I need to pull everyone together. Everyone was so sad, depressed. Um, and I just didn't want to stay there. I wanted to make everyone happy. I wanted to take care of everyone. And so I tried my best to try to take that role, which really wasn't my place to, but I feel like that's what I did. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how old were you when you feel like you took over that mom role for your brothers? I probably would have been 13 when I really started taking over it, and then, like, officially 14 when I started, like, taking over, like, all the household work and making dinners um, and cleaning, cooking, etc. So when you were 14 years old, you took over the managing the house and keeping Mm -hmm. everything clean. Yeah, I think actually when I was 14, I might have made my first Thanksgiving dinner. Wow. Um, Or it was either 14 or 15, but right around that time. I can't remember exactly. So, yeah, I really tried to bring life and happiness to my family, especially because I just, I don't know why. I just, I just wanted to. I guess I wanted to be happy for my, myself because I mm-hmm. realized at one point, like, no one's going to be happy. No one's going to be happy. Like, no one around me was happy. And I didn't want to just stay there in this sadness. So what ways do you think we're not made, at least not in the West? I mean, I don't know. Back in time, 14 was maybe you were an adult or I don't know, right? But mm-hmm. from what we understand and how our culture is, um, you're still a little kid. Right, you don't you don't know anything at fourteen. You're, mm-hmm. and so you're just beginning to peek into what it means to have major personal responsibility. But everything is still built for you. You know, you still have systems that you're a part of till you're eighteen, and even at mm-hmm. eighteen, you know, you're going into your first jobs, into your first you know whatever. You're still launching into systems that are meant to help you. It's not until you're you know older like us where it's like, all right, now everything's pretty much by my own manpower and my own responsibility. And so how did that affect you at that age, but also how has it affected you coming out of it? What is it like to basically become, for lack of a better word, a mom to your siblings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what it does to you is it makes you have to be strong before mm-hmm. your time. I felt like whatever, when everyone else's emotions around me were sto- so unstable and back and forth I felt like my emotions had to stay the same all the time so I felt like I had to be like superficially strong around my family Mm -hmm. like I I learned I actually probably I don't think I cried at all from like trying to think maybe I know probably I don't think I really cried for like years and years and years and years and years like Mm -hmm. I don't I really felt like I couldn't I didn't have a place a safe place to be 
free with my emotions because I felt like I had yeah. to, if I would fall apart, everyone else would fall apart. And then we'd just all be one big, sad right. family. So the word I think of is composure. Mm-hmm. Um, you were keeping your composure because somebody had to, mm-hmm. right? And that's not a 100% necessarily a sign of a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's good to have composure. But if composure is a symptom, then you have to wonder what's underneath. You know, what's, what's forcing us to have composure? Like, for example, um, this year I started a job as a dispatcher. And when I was interviewed, they asked, what are your strengths? And I said, I have good composure. When things around me are on fire, I'm focused on putting the fire out. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I'm not screaming and kicking like I'm going to die. Because if I die, I die. You know, like, mm-hmm. and this is all metaphor. That is all, you know, but because if I'm in a fire, I am freaking out, right? But the, the whole idea was because of the life that I've lived, because of where I grew up, right in the heart of the city of York, um, the way that I went through what I went through, the things that happened to me, um, I could have either been a broken puddle in front of you and been a mess, or it could have, along with a lot of baggage, brought strength in my life. Now, I know from personal experience that you use the word superficial. And that's a good word for it because some people look at that as that all, that's all you need is just to be strong and get up and, and figure it out, you know, um, whether it's stoicism, whatever it is. I think life is just not that simple for most people. So in what ways was that composure superficial? One thing I think of is obviously, Rebecca, you are where you are today. And so who in your life um, or what in your life was able to bring about positive change in your life? Because I, I think of you as someone who, I mean, I didn't know you at that age, but I assume you're at a better place now than you were when you were 14. How did that happen? What did God bring in your life that was able to make that possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there about like how it was superficial and it's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think part of what I did to maintain that composure was to just stuff my own emotions, my own feelings and pretend like they weren't there or not, or just push them to the side. And I think I started doing that even before I started really taking over for my family and the caretaking role. I think it started even farther back when I was still, you know, a child, even more so, like Mm -hmm. um, seven or eight years old. And like my, like my, Trust was broken by someone in my life that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I started stuffing my emotions then because I felt like my heart died and so emotions died with it. So so to, so that was probably the beginning of learning how to not, to just stuff emotions and just know, like, for example, when I felt, when my, um, my mother left me, I... I feel like my heart died at that moment. And I also, mm-hmm. I had, I'd really cried really badly that evening, cried and cried and cried and like into the morning and I and woke up and it didn't make any difference. So I learned just in that moment that crying didn't change anything. So mm-hmm. I already started stuffing my emotions then and thinking that it doesn't make a difference. And so that just carried into my, um, as I went into my early teens and, took over the role of trying to be happy for everyone. Um, It just continued in that way. And so at that point, yeah, I was externally um, helping my family and interacting with my friends, but my heart was very closed. So to come back to your question, Keyshawn, 
it was in my sixth grade year, I believe, that uh, my teacher, she noticed, despite my abilities to be able to hide my emotions, she did notice something was a little off about me. Because mm. I would normally come to class and really, really happy and everything, but she noticed something was different. So she took me outside the classroom and sat me down and asked me, you know, is something going on? What's going on? Um, I just noticed that you did not seem like yourself. And I remember sitting there and being absolutely like silent. Like I feel like I felt like I wanted to say something, but I literally could not talk, Keyshawn. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't. Like nothing would come out. I just said, I'm okay, like I'm fine. Um, I wanted to share, but I couldn't. I didn't even know it was yeah, it was like a wall was there just blocking anything. So you but, actually wanted to share. Like but I, you just felt like you couldn't do it. Yeah, like I feel like yeah. I, I feel like I at least owed her some kind of explanation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I because I liked her, I thought she was a really cool teacher, but I feel like I couldn't mm-hmm. physically say a word. Um, and but and of course at that age I was t- eleven or twelve at that time. I didn't understand my emotions, and I didn't understand that like my heart was closed and that mm-hmm. I couldn't, like, like I couldn't express what was inside. Um, so, but regardless, my teacher reaching out to me was very significant, even though I couldn't share and I w- wouldn't have shared. I, it was significant that she noticed me, yeah. which that was something that I really needed. I needed to be noticed and I needed someone to say something to me. So I think that started it. And then she continued to have a relationship with me. She would take me to over to her house after school and we'd make, like, have me over for dinner and I would, I soon like fell head over heels in love. That's very dramatic, but like I really, mm-hmm. in the sense of like, wow, she was a wonderful role model. Like she was a, a woman that I really looked up to and I needed a role model at that time in my life that yeah. like I could see that her, like she was someone that I wanted to be like. And cause especially around this time, unfortunately my mother was going out of my life and it wasn't, I, I realized what I didn't have, I should say. Mm-hmm through her. Um, and so that was very significant. And I don't feel like I shared much with her really for those first couple of years of her reaching out to me, but she did, um, teach me how to cook some and just showed me attention and love, which my heart was starving for. Like I really was hungry. So you just said something that I thought was really interesting. You said the first couple of years, you didn't open up a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Now, I get a lot of messages from people who are asking, like, hey, I'm mentoring or discipling somebody, and they're just stubborn. They get on my nerves. Like, I can't stand how they just won't open up. Mm-hmm. And I can almost, it's almost ironic. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, if I were that person and I were hearing you talk like this, you know, um, people, can, people can get a good feel for your heart. I've always said that, that especially children from cities are just, I think all children are this way. But in my context, from what I experience, is that children know pretty soon into a relationship or interaction what kind of person you are um Mm -hmm. we tend to think of children as naive and stupid but um they're just prone to mistakes Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't they can't feel something's off they're maybe dumb enough to try to take advantage of it and get caught you know but they they know when that missionary or that kids club um teacher is in it for themselves Mm -hmm. one thing that i think is a good sign that someone has to do some reflection as a group leader, a teacher, or whatever, is their impatience. Working with people who need help takes incredible patience, decades-long mm-hmm. patience, and that is so rare. People, people are so afraid to recognize that I cannot let results dictate how 
much I'm here for this person. Mm -hmm. And so as Christian people, we tend to think like, well, I've tried and tried, and they, but they live in iniquity. And I'm like, listen, but it's been seven days. Give them a chance. You know, <laughs> it's not that big. It's, and so I know for me, uh, me coming up through Kids Club, um, it took three years before someone even noticed that there's something more to this kid than the energy and the craziness and the badness. And um, I think what you're saying here is, is of note that this is a long-term relationship, um, even as for you as a kid. Several years is a long time, right? You dedicate yourself to something for several years. You don't, you're borderline an expert at it. Um, and that's while that's happening, she's helping you. She's teaching you how to cook, whatever she's doing. And eventually you got to a point where you're able to open up. Can you say, say some about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, unfortunately, like, she was only in my life at a short, a short period of time, which it mm-hmm. was only a couple of years. So I actually feel like I never got to the place where I was actually really able to share okay. with her, unfortunately, although I feel like we would have been there. I did, I remember having conversations, like, like she really cared about my spiritual mm-hmm. life. And I remember her, like, really encouraging me to become a Christian. And I just remember telling her, like, look, it's hard to be a Christian at my mm-hmm. house. Like, it's not easy to be a Christian. Like, I, I remember that. I remember opening up in that way to her. But as for actually able to share, like, what happened in my past, like, with my family and the heartache of my mom abandoning me and things like that, I was not actually able to really express with her. Mm-hmm. Although I was able to share some of, like, the present challenges and so when she left to go overseas, I think this is where I could kind of jump into this next question of what we I think if I, can, if I can jump in your area, um, I think it seemed like then into the next stage was something that you wish you could, you know, change or was different that you took into your teenage years. Is that the question you're yeah. trying to answer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So to answer that question, because I never really got the opportunity to really open up to Lisa, who was the mentor in my life at that time, although she did have a good idea of like what my family situation was mm-hmm. like, but I don't feel like she fully knew everything. Um, yeah, she couldn't notice everything. Yeah, and she didn't yeah. know. She only could see what was happening presently. She couldn't see what was in the past that we we ha- that we experienced. She left, and then, but I was it, through her. I got connected to more connected into the church at Reading Fairy um, Mennonite Church. And I stuck around there um, for the next while. Continued to still try to mask or hide my past. Like, by then trying to pretend like everything was fine. Like, trying to fit in, basically. Mm -hmm. And try to put on, like, try to match what I probably inaccurately saw. But from my eyes, I felt like everyone was perfect. Um, That was a part of the community there. And I know that's not true. But... Regardless, I've, compared to my life, I felt like I, my life was very, very, very imperfect and broken, but their lives were together and whole. And um, so I, for the next, from like 13, I guess, to hmm, 17 or 18, actually, I just worked very, very hard. No, actually, I would say 17. I worked very, very, very hard to be normal. And so that involved trying to fit in in every way possible. I also very much wanting to learn the culture there and um, figure out what what goes and what doesn't go, mm-hmm. and then trying to acclimate myself accordingly. I think I believed 
which I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I believe that like, because I did have a past, like I had to be extra, 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 extra perfect in order to ever really get anywhere with the community, like, mm-hmm. but really find a place there. So that's yeah. what I've chased down for many, many years mm-hmm. following that. So I think it's interesting that, you know, Lisa wasn't necessarily a lifelong impact in your life in terms of she's there, you know, throughout the entire process. But people rarely are. You know, there's very few people in my life that I've, I've had my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's for everybody. Everybody's that way. And so we have to be realistic with this. You know, I, I know when, I, when I, we started a Big Brother program, Trevor was a Big Brother in the program. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you had Jalen, I had um, Sammy. I still interact with Sammy here and there. Um, but I told Sammy, I'm here, I'm here for the rest of your life. You're stuck with me. Um, it doesn't matter what you do, even if you become an evil person, you're my evil brother. You know, it's not going to change. That commitment was not the norm in that program. And it, because it's just, it's almost impossible. It's very difficult to keep tabs on somebody for their whole life, you know. And I'm only 26. Who knows where I'll be when I'm 50? Um, maybe when I'll, when I'll talk again. I don't know, right? Um, realistically, it could happen. But I know what I want. I know what I'm committed to. And so we are in almost what's a blip of each other's lives. You know, if that's the case, what are you doing with that time? How are you treating and loving people while you're with them? Um, And so, yes, I'm always going to promote long-term commitment in these relationships. But if you can't, and you definitely can't ensure it, you can't promise it like I did. That's maybe a little reckless. You have to make sure that you're at least sobered and and smart about how you want to use that time. I mean, I think people who are tuning in this podcast are naturally interested in that. First. Well, and on that topic, I mean, it's still like years of commitment that made the difference for Lisa and Becca's life. And yeah. it was extremely, extremely hard when she left, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it still was a very impactful thing to have. It's very impactful to have people that are important to you who are no longer in your life. Yeah. But you're right. That's unfortunately an unavoidable part of life. And that's what that's what happens. But it's still you can't take those um you know, being present for someone, you can't take that lightly. Right. Absolutely. So, Rebecca, there's something that I know that's really important to you that I want to make sure we cover here on this episode. Um, I have always valued this, but I have failed many times. Not saying that it's, a, I think it's much of a deeper, more genuine value for you than it was for me or is for me. Because I, I like drama. <laughs> I like talking about things that happened. Working in that one center doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it, it's... I see so much, but one thing that I will, Lord willing, never be guilty of, is compromising something that is that needs to be cut, that needs to be kept a secret for someone. The petty stuff needs to be worked on in my life. But as a mentor, one of the things that I really valued with my team, I was head mentor there at school, was what happens in that room unless it needs to be said. Like, let's say the student's doing drugs. I told my mentees when I started, I'm not keeping that a secret for you. So don't tell me unless you're willing to have help with it. The moment that that gets brought up in in that room, I have to help you or I have to tell on you. (laughs) One of the two things, right? So, and it's going to be both, but if I'm helping you, you'll be safe, right? And I ensured that with them. And there were times that I I was told things. I found out that that promise actually got, it opened up a, a world in their lives to me that I wasn't even aware of. Things that they had gone through, things that they were doing, that for some people, they'd be like, we need to call the police, you know? And for me, who was a little, again, a little more grounded, a little more experienced, had been through those things, was like, 
take a deep breath. We can, you're going to be okay. You know, we, we have a source, a power. We have a God that can help you with this. You've been a mentor. Um, you've talked about this in different places. The word is confidentiality. And what does it mean for someone who has come out of your, your position? It's one thing for people to look at your story and say, yeah, that's, that's inspiring. We encourage them to keep going and keep trying with people. But if they do that and they don't address this issue, this thing, then they're going to actually hurt people rather than help them. Yeah, I think confidentiality is a huge deal to me because of how hard it was for me to talk as a child. And mm -hmm. even now, mm -hmm. it's hard for me to talk. And yeah. I think it's because of this trust issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's it takes incredible vulnerability to share something that you feel like can make you look bad, I guess, or mm -hmm. less than or unworthy even, which I know those things aren't true, you know, but it's still something that you believe, especially if that's where you, you, things you have in your past. So to know that someone you're sharing these things with is not going to share it with anyone, especially anyone that would be more than happy to hear it and then share it with others is, is very huge in creating a bridge of trust mm -hmm. in that relationship. So, yeah, with Lisa, when I, she first asked me those questions, like, I didn't even understand that I didn't trust her at that age. I did not understand that that was part of the issue. I just didn't trust. But to know that someone actually cares about you in, enough to keep something private that isn't going to hurt you, anyone beyond yourself is important. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm trying to say even more, like, with confidentiality, if someone's a confidential person, they're really there to listen to you because they really care about you. It's not mm -hmm. about something about oh, finding this interesting information. I think we all have to recognize this, this wrong attitude in our hearts to learn about people to satisfy yep. our information hungry self. <laughs> and so I think it just, it goes really, really deep in the heart of our own makeup as humans to look at someone and say, I really care about you and I really want to hear about you. And to the point where it's literally about you mm -hmm. and you want to join them in their sorrows, in their pain, mm -hmm. meet them in their past, sit there with them. And then you, 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 you basically, I can't say it, but maybe have deep empathy where you're actually feeling their pain and sorrows to the point where it's not like you're going to want to go share that just like with anyone. It's like a hollowed experience. It's like a mm -hmm. very, very holy experience, I think, because mm -hmm. I feel like that's what Christ does with us. When we take our sorrows to Christ, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. is there sitting with us and he's holding mm -hmm. us and he's crying with us and he's feeling our pain. And he's not going to go tell anyone about that. Yeah. in an off, off-handed way or just like, oh, guess what I've heard about? Or, you know, I think we have to really be honest with ourselves and our hearts and our motives. N not overthink it, but be really genuine and yeah. ask God to give us his heart when it comes to sitting with people in their pain and yeah. sorrow. That's an aspect of Jesus that is so rarely talked about is he is intentional, personal. Um, when we are praying to him, when we are, when we are with him, he is they're with us, right? Mm -hmm. He is entirely there for us, with us. Um, we, I am guilty of preaching and talking about how God is a very jealous God and God is very 
And those things are all true. You know, it, it's really guided my life and my motivation to recognize that, you know, I'm not God. He is, you know, and that's been a really big deal to me. But it's also important to recognize that um, God is personal. Mm-hmm. He has to be. That's the only redemptive way to, to come, go forward with this is that we can have personal relationship with him. Outside mm-hmm. of that, we're just doomed. You mm-hmm. know, there's nothing. We, we die and then we're, at, we're just at the mercy of the creator. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. Mm-hmm. We can provide an assemblance of that inner person with each other. I think it's so important. Um, I just, I've been mentoring a young man for what's going on now six years and he just opened up to me in a real way for the first time this year Hmm. and in a moment that may have saved his life you know i don't know that but it it was looking bad it wasn't the thing that sobered me about it is there was no doubt in my mind that i was going to be there for him that he knew that i knew that but the amount of apologizing that he had to do um and and i i didn't say what i heard you say but I, i this is what i meant to him is you keep making this about me. <laughs> you keep making this about, mm-hmm. you know, my time, my effort, my, you know, whatever. This is about you, right? It can be about me when I, when I need something, but right now I'm here for you. And the disposition, the heart of a Christian, a, a, um, someone who's like Jesus, is going to be looking to do that for people, mm-hmm. not just take it from everyone, right? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest risk for this attitude to become deadly is ironically on the mission field. You know, they go somewhere and they see intense need. So they start getting into rooms in the houses and they start gaining trust and they start getting just data and information on people. And I don't know what it is about us as humans, but we just like it. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes it, it makes us feel like we're important. It makes us feel like we're doing something big. We'll write a book about it one day. Mm-hmm. And it just these things are not the helpful parts, the good parts about what it means to be there for people. And so, yeah, I thought that was really valuable. I would say, I mean, people have talked about this as the savior mindset, mindset, the savior mindset, but it's, I think what you, what both of you have said in different ways is just when you're in something for the experience of it for yourself, like going in for an experience. I think this is what short term missions can be, but this could Mm -hmm. also be once a week missions. This could be once, Mm -hmm. you know, um, these experiences that we go into step into someone's life for what it means for us instead of what it means for them. Yeah. I think you said that very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't bring up missions to say that that's all. I mean, relationally. You know, I'm someone who I don't see myself on a mission field necessarily. I mean, I grew up in New York. It's easy for me, right? But um, even if I were living in Boston, Philly, wherever, I'd be living there. That's just how I live my life. I live here. I have relationships with people that matter to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's what I encourage for everyone. But because we have a mission culture, um, it, it's only fair to at least evaluate it from that lens. And so this is not just for missionaries. This is for all of us relationally in our families and everything, um, even mm-hmm. with our own people that are closest to us that we've known for years. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. It's for the like not just the mission field, not just the thinking to that type of like set apart like experience but it's our everyday life it starts with your it starts with your brother or sister it starts with your um friend it starts with the people right around you learning how to really value them in the ways that i think we all want to be valued if we actually mm-hmm. sit back and think about it like it's really it goes right back to the greatest commandment right mm-hmm. well 
the first one, right? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love the, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. I think if we would all live out of that, loving others as we want to be loved, it's a really powerful, practical way to do missions. Of course, I know there's a lot, like having that fleshed out can be different for different people, different personalities, but at the end of the day, I think we all share one common thread, and that is that we want to be respected as humans, we want to be loved, and we want to be heard. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants someone to be talking behind their back. I don't know if anyone I've ever met that actually appreciates people talking behind their back. So yeah. I think those are some common threads that we all share. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's what is so significant about confidentiality for me. Yeah. Is that people actually are, have the time to listen and the safe, provide the safe space. Now, you said something there. You said the word heard. Have you felt heard coming through, you know, whatever age um, in the church experiences that you've had? Um, and the reason I ask this question, the reason I ask it is I get, have gotten a lot of um, feedback from people who most of them are no longer attending um, at least a Anabaptist church, but they're coming to me from that tradition, this tradition. And they're, they're sharing that I just never felt like, whether they say I, don't, I had an equal voice, any voice, um, whether they felt betrayed at one point, whether they felt, yes, I could share, they care what I say, but it's not safe. I'm, I'm afraid what could happen if I do. There's so many different ways, so many different things that this that could cause this feeling. But the overwhelming usual is I don't say much in church because I don't, I don't think that they would be able to hear it. It is a feeling that I relate to and I felt as well. The reason that I think you have a valuable perspective on this, as anyone does, I know Qua talked about it um, and we'll be talking about it this season quite a bit more. I, I mean, we could talk the whole podcast about that with him. Um, talking about what is it like to assimilate into a culture of people who didn't weren't, weren't raised the way that you were and yet value them and then, just as importantly, be valued back. 